0: not a conflict, but a war.
1: Whatever is happening in Ukraine is influencing every single country. We become refugees not from our will. <sighs> the virus changed not only my life, but the life of the whole
2: Ukraine.
3: This week's episode is a recording of a panel that here Geneva and Trumanitarian co-organized on March 14th. panel was about Ukraine and the title was Small Fish in a Big Pond. It was about Ukrainian organizations' access to international funding, or maybe rather lack of access to international funding. It's the fifth and the final episode in our miniseries on Ukraine. It's a great discussion which revisits many of the themes we covered over the first four episodes on Ukraine. Julia Chikolba is also on this panel and listening into the conversation again brought home the point to me just how lucky I was to find Julia to co-host the Ukraine episodes with me. It really was a pleasure working with her. Val hamby Verbrücken from Here Geneva chairs the panel and she does an excellent job of introducing all the participants and the topic. So all that's left for me to do is to remind you to promote the pod on social media, recommend it to your colleagues and friends, reviewers wherever you listen, and please enjoy the conversation.
4: Thank you very much for uh, joining today's event. So um, Small Fish in a Big Pond, Ukrainian Organization's Lack of Access to International Humanitarian Funding, uh, my name is Val Hambiverbruggen. bruggen I work with Here Geneva, and I will be facilitating/slash moderating today. Um, we are. Jo- I'm joined by three panelists who I'm really um, excited to have on board today. So the first person that we uh, that I'm that who the first panelist who will be joining us is uh, Julia Chikolba. So. Yulia is the co-host of the Trumanitarian podcast series marking the one-year anniversary of the large-scale invasion of Ukraine. Yulia was born in Dnipro, Ukraine, and first became involved with humanitarian action when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, um, and has since then worked with humanitarian mine action in Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. Yulia is a Chevening scholar and and an alumna of the Department of War Studies from King's College London. The second panelist joining us is Marco Rotelli, who is the former UN Deputy Humanitarian Coordinator for Ukraine, um, although Marco is speaking in his personal capacity at today's event. Um, Prior to this role in Ukraine, Marco served as representative for Africa of the global NGO network, ICVA, and in operations with NGOs and the UN in most of the major humanitarian crises since the early 2000s. the third person that we have joining us is Robert Sari, who is the former first ambassador of the Netherlands to Ukraine, and chairman of the foundation opendoorukraine.nl, who are currently actively involved in humanitarian early reconstruction activities in Ukraine. Um, he has past experience in international crisis management and, sorry, is an international crisis management expert who has served in senior positions, both with, the NATO, with NATO and the UN. Um, so I'm very glad to have all three of you on board. Um, we also have my colleagues Martia and Frida from here, Geneva, who are uh, joining as backup and who you might see popping in and out. Um, so before anything else, I would like to thank our panelists for making the time to join me today and also to thank all of the participants for attending. Um, I would also like to really thank the Trumanitarian podcast for their support in making this panel happen. Um, This panel is also being recorded and will serve as the uh, fifth and final episode of the Trumanitarian podcast series. So I know that the link to the podcast series has been dropped in the chat if you want to check that out um, after this event has wrapped. But I really recommend listening to it. Um, So as you saw in the concept note, the focus of today's event is really on the interplay between international actors and Ukrainian national and local actors via the lens of humanitarian funding. Um, And then this panel also ties in with here Geneva's work more generally. Um, So we try to enable dialogue and bring in different perspectives on critical issues as part of the exchange work that we do. And in the case of today's panel, this will feed into our broader research on humanitarian coordination. Um, Maybe a bit of housekeeping very briefly. So as I mentioned, this panel is being recorded um, and uh, we are going to start with a one hour session slash discussion between panelists and then we'll move on to a half hour Q&A session where you can ask your questions via the chat, but there will be opportunities for you to address some of the questions that you might have throughout. So please feel free to react via the chat and ask your questions there as they arise. And we will um, incorporate them um, throughout as well. But the brunt of the Q&A session will be at the end of this, um, the, the last half hour of uh, of this event. Um, OK. I think that about covers the um, general admin side of things. So let's jump right into the discussion. Um, So one of the questions that we had when we started thinking about this event was originally going to be phrased as, in your experience, have Ukrainian organizations benefited from the promptness and generosity of the international response? Um, But then, as has become fairly obvious um, fairly quickly, we know that the answer to that is not really, which is based on research that was done both by Humanitarian Outcome and the Disasters Emergency Committee, as well as open letters by Ukrainian and Polish civil society. So instead, I would like to phrase this question to our panelists um, differently and to ask you, what has been your experience of Ukrainian NGOs benefiting from international from the international funding response? And maybe, Yulia, you can take the floor first.
5: Um, yeah, I can take the floor first, but I would be very uh, careful with... Um... Portraying my experience as experience of the Ukrainian NGO, just just to have this disclaimer in the beginning, uh, because I, I I don't belong to any of them. Um, however, during the humanitarian podcast, we discussed it a lot, and we discussed this issue a lot with uh, several national actors, uh, both small and big. And I would probably start from dissecting this question. Um, what do we mean by international funding here, right? Because uh, there was a tremendous um, outpouring of solidarity and uh, fundraising on the private sector, on a private donation from diaspora, from all over the world, but also inside Ukraine. And uh, the crowdfunding platforms and this flexible funding that went straight to local actors, not necessarily even NGOs, was actually very beneficial and was something that um, that was defined the response back in um, end of February, March, when the majority of international organizations and international system was basically paralyzed uh, by the full-scale invasion. So this part of funding, and I think uh, all Ukrainians would agree with me, it was immensely beneficial, it was immensely supportive, and uh, it was something that actually saved a tremendous number of lives. Um, when it comes to international funding through traditional channels, right, through the ants, through the donors, um, the situation is not that optimistic um, because I, I really, I was thinking a lot about your promptness and generosity Definitions and when it comes to generosity, probably it is better than promptness, Um, because when it when we are talking about generosity, yes, uh, first of all, like we we all have this data, a very little percentage of actually national funding went straight to national NGOs, and when this percentage went to national NGOs, there is never enough uh, support costs, there is never overhead, it's just basically um, using cheap or free workforce of national NGOs for distributing goods um, to, to, to population, which is never the case for international system, uh, neither UN nor international NGOs. Um, when it comes to promptness, that situation is even worse. Uh, because when it comes to the official funding stream, we have quite a lot of and quite significant uh, due diligence processes. We have uh, quite quite an amount of bureaucracy that prevents uh, national actors from benefiting of this international funding. So promptness is like absolutely not. Generosity probably better than without it. Uh, but uh, I would say that local actors, unfortunately, um, stay underfunded, stay underrepresented, uh, and stay um, sometimes in a parallel with official system and sometimes really prefer not to get involved in it because there is very limited trust in effectiveness and and efficiency of this system. So, yeah, that's very short in a nutshell, but uh, I think we'll discuss further.
4: Yeah, thank you very much, Julia, for um, offering your insights on this. Um, I think before asking questions, I'd like us to really go around the table and ask for everyone's experiences. So, uh, Robert, I put the same question to you. What has been your experience in terms mm. of the promptness and generosity? And let's put that in quotes. Um, response.
0: Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Val, uh, Val, and also here Geneva for actually inviting me. But I do feel myself a bit of an exotic fish in this pond, uh, in the sense that I'm certainly not uh, considering myself a uh, an expert in uh, in uh, in humanitarian assistance. But I can also add, I'm learning fast since the war and uh, since so many activities have started also from my country, from uh, from the Netherlands. And here I can uh, um, uh, I, I very much agree with Julia that we also need to think about which international funding we are indeed talking about because. If it comes to the crowdfunding, also coming from uh, from the Netherlands, uh, from the beginning, the response has been very big. And um, OpendoorUkraine.nl, the uh, head of foundation, which I am uh, <clears throat> representing today, uh, we are a kind of umbrella organization, or at least we uh, we, uh, we intend to be, of, uh, of Dutch smaller uh, humanitarian organizations, which have been very active right from the beginning. And... You know, I think that before the war, maybe there were some 10, 15 uh, smaller uh, humanitarian organizations active in Ukraine. Now, I we, we can't keep them counting. I think it's probably something around 50. And if you think about uh, uh, what they have been able also to collect on their own, because they are not beneficiaries of uh, the 555 big uh, uh, action, for instance, which was started also in the Netherlands, the public action. Um, then uh, i can say that uh, probably tens of millions probably 50 or so uh, have been already channeled uh, through uh, through these very small sometimes very small crowdfunding activities and they are very direct they have their own contacts uh, with uh, with ukrainians uh, they are coming sometimes also very close to the to the front line in uh, in providing uh, all kinds of uh, direct humanitarian uh, help uh, yeah, you it is really the basic uh, humanitarian assistance which uh, which they are providing yeah, from uh, from food blankets uh, stoves uh, and so on and of course also generators uh, since the, since the winter so and and this and and in this we have played our own part also as uh, as open door ukraine um but um since i have been getting more involved in this uh, also as open door ukraine we have uh, we have been actually going maybe one step up the ladder because we got involved now also in early recovery, or you can call it early reconstruction activities, which uh, actually started more or less by coincidence uh, after I uh, uh, made a visit to uh, to Irpin. But we are now repairing the roofs of, uh, uh, they are called OSBBS, uh, homeowner associations, with uh, having uh, flat buildings with no roofs or sometimes also no top roof because of the war. We're not only doing it for, uh, for these kinds of OSBBS, but we're also doing it for schools and other uh, organizations by now this started with crowdfunding and it became a very i think an, an, uh, a successful model because we were able actually to help now already three of such flat buildings in irpin and so we tried to get more money well that was also difficult for us <laughs> and we are not a ukrainian organization but in the meantime we have been successful we uh, we are now uh, about to conclude an agreement with um, Stichting Vluchteling Foundation, a uh, refugee in the Netherlands, but also Oxfam uh, and Oxfam Novib uh, uh, is, is going uh, to help us. But also for us, it's that is a steep uh, learning curve, actually, in terms of how these organizations operate. Um, the due diligence, and and we are also not in a very uh, big organization. All these things are also uh, difficult for us. So I can imagine how difficult it will be for all those Ukrainian organizations, uh, which uh, uh, since the war uh, have been also registering registering themselves as humanitarian organizations in uh, in in Ukraine. So this is really, I think, a problem uh, which we which we uh, are this uh, discussing today. We see our role and here I will stop uh, as Open Door Ukraine more as uh, the junior partner uh, of now these bigger uh, um, established uh, 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 international uh, humanitarian organizations like the ones I have mentioned. Uh, I say junior junior partner because I believe we can add something to them. After all, we have networks. Uh, I've been the former Dutch ambassador. I've always been back also to Ukraine in in Open Door Ukraine, we have uh, both Dutch and, and Ukrainians uh, working together. It's very much also a network organization. So we, I, I feel that we can add uh, to uh, with our knowledge and experience in Ukraine also to these uh, organizations, which, of course, are not very familiar with the situation in Ukraine because they didn't used to the work there. That's another, uh, I think, issue uh, for for them also. Um, but I know that they are uh, trying to uh, also learn fast and have established uh, uh, also offices now in, uh, in, in Ukraine. But um, I do agree that there is apparently a problem because if I read in your <laughs> uh, paper here for this, uh, that uh, only 1% and maybe it's, it's, no, it's more by now, uh, uh, maybe a few percent points, uh, of that uh, assistance, the official assistance, more or less, uh, uh, from uh, from from these organizations, um, comes to um, to uh, to local uh, Ukrainian groups, then something is wrong. Clearly,
4: yeah. So we'll have the opportunity to return to the to the question of the footprint slightly further in the discussion. Maybe just before. I, uh, sorry, and thank you, Robert, for your um, no, you. presentation. Um, so before I uh, hand over to Marco, I just want to specify in case our attendants are unfamiliar with the the 555 that Robert just mentioned. Um, so 555 is a foundation which um, basically had a raised an appeal for Ukraine. So it's similar to the appeal that was raised by Swiss Solidarity in Switzerland, uh, DEC Disasters Emergency Committee in the UK, and axiom Deutschland Hilft in Germany, um, who. By mid-April had raised six hundred million, and this is primarily through um, private donations. So I just wanted to clarify that point before we moved on, in case there was any um, a lack of there was a lack of clarity around that. Um, Marco, so coming to you now, um, you are coming in more from the um, big aid uh, side of the question. So I'd be really interested in your perspective and uh, maybe how it. Contrasts or complements the perspectives that we've heard from Julia and Robert. You have the floor.
2: Thank you, and thank you for having me. No, of course it complements. It never contrasts. I mean, even if it contrasts, it complements, right? <laughs> so, uh, as I said, I'm speaking in my personal capacity, which is giving me a little bit of more freedom to be uh, to be as spontaneous as I can, also to pick up from. Uh, uh, from the other uh, colleagues' uh, uh, interventions and so I will start from the original uh, question itself. Uh, to me, the matter uh, is not really if organizations benefited, but is about the people, the affected people. Uh, did they benefit from uh, this bonanza, for lack of a better word, uh, of funding compared to many, many other uh, crises around the world or not? If they did, uh, to me, uh, extremizing a little bit the concept becomes a little bit irrelevant how they did it, right? Then it becomes a little bit theoretical and so on. I think here we we need to point at the effectiveness uh, at the end of the day and to see uh, what is uh, really happening. Now, uh, I think, and uh, you know, we discussed with uh, with many uh, colleagues during the the, the months uh, of the response and so on. Uh, I think where the frustrations uh, are around the funding for national and local organizations and even non-organizations, volunteer groups, and other more informal groups, uh, is uh, on the concept and connotation of directness of the funding, how direct it is. Now, if we go back, uh, if we rewind the the, the old thing to 23rd of February, I think last year. 2022, I think the HRP, the, 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 the formal funding uh, for humanitarian response in Ukraine was around 20 million. Now, uh, the combined uh, amount of uh, HRP and uh, and the response to, to the neighboring countries, the refugee response is roughly 5.6 billion, all right? So an incredible span and so on. I would argue that the large majority of this uh, uh, money is spent by local and national actors now uh, so we are very far from the one percent okay the one percent is probably related to how direct it is but the overall spending at the end of the day is done by local uh by local actors how in a number of ways uh the first way of course is a number and we will discuss uh, during this uh, this uh, this panel uh, a number of organizations that have direct or indirect access to 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 funding and they do operate as a NGO or a volunteer group and so on. They do the typical typical response of an organization. But in the overall response, we have at least two two elements. Of course, there is a huge amount of protection. It means a lot of soft skills, a lot of uh, uh, stuff basically to pay for counselors for uh, psychological uh, support for uh, elements around uh, around uh, uh, I don't know child protection etc cetera, etc cetera. but there is uh, an incredible amount of money spent every day in Ukraine on assistance which is supply driven but not only supply uh, it is also basically work uh, it can be WFp buying uh, most of the food uh, in Ukraine as it used to do before the war, for the rest of the world, by the way, but uh, uh, you know, a lot of the food is bought by, uh, by, um, both by by food-related organizations and agencies in Ukraine for Ukrainians, and so there is a, a, a private sector and workers and salaries that do benefit around millions and millions spent every every day, if not week, uh, with these amounts. But it's also all the elements around, for instance, we have been mentioning uh, roof repairing, house repairing, uh, windows, and so on. Of course, most of the contractors. Uh, and most of the uh, technicians and workers that do install the repair kits and the windows and so on are Ukrainians and monies are spent there. Now, I don't want to to, to, to blur <laughs> uh, or, or to mark the water in, 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 in bringing other elements, but at the end of the day, most of the, uh, the funding is indeed spent there. Now, again, the frustration is around uh, who gets the money directly from the source. That if we go at the, at the real source, so the institutional donors or ECD countries, then, of course, you have a lot of pass through the UN particularly, through the INGOs, and then through the INGOs, to the national NGOs, and the national NGOs are divided or you know, uh, represented by a, a plethora uh, of categories. Uh, there are the formal uh, organizations that are pretty big and they, they are equivalent to any international mid-sized international organization. I would say there are famous names there. Some are in uh, protection, some are more in, uh, uh, in assistance, but they are doing uh, 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 country-wide work. But there are also uh, smaller organizations down. And probably is the, is the wrong uh, uh, is the wrong allusion down. It's not uh, down or up, <laughs> you know. But to the side to volunteer groups. Now, the characteristic of some of the groups, and then we will enter. I'm sure, during the this discussion around the principles about solidarities versus, uh, versus humanitarianism, et cetera, et cetera, but the characteristics of some of these volunteer groups is that they don't want to become an organization. Uh, and this is partially because of the nature of the country we're talking about, very developed with a very sophisticated and uh, developed society where an engineer, an architect that is doing uh, currently a volunteer work very treacherous dangerous uh, uh, demanding work it has been doing uh, he or she has been doing it for months now for more than a year uh, wouldn't do it uh, if the war uh, ends tomorrow as we all hope right they would go- like to go back to their uh, original work and so on there is no appeal uh, to create an NGO as in other countries uh, becomes. Uh, An appealing uh, business uh, where there is a lot of interest in creating around the organization itself rather than around the output of the organizations toward, again, and trying to serve to close the circle toward the affected population. I think I can stop here and then (laughs) we'll develop further.
4: So, yeah, thank you very much for, for this um, kind of presentation of, uh, and the, these insights. Um, there are things that are emerging from the conversation that I would like to get back to, particularly in the interest in engaging with the formal international system. But um, I think maybe before we get to that, um, what do you see right now? And going back to, specifically to the point of direct access um what do you see as being enablers or obstacles to this and i'm thinking particularly for example of the rules and bureaucracy that exist at the international level um is this suited to a situation like ukraine and i think marco i'm going to ask for your perspective on this first so
2: so of course there is a there is a i mean the international system the funding system of the, the, the funding is not fit for uh, local uh, actors to get access. I mean, uh, although there are, uh, I would say allegedly, uh, or arguably rather, uh, minimal requirements like uh, having $100,000 turnover a year or three years of existence in a, as a registered organization and so on, many organizations, or whatever they are, do not have this, uh, this privilege, if you want, or this uh, curriculum. Uh, so there is already, uh, at the beginning of the conversation, already a, a limitation. Uh, this, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it is it is what is basically keeping them outside of the mainstream system. If the system was not flexible, basically, this organization would only wait for money to trickle down through subcontracts, okay, which is uh, sort of... Uh, uh, a sort of sin in uh, in uh, in the current narrative after the grand bargain, subcontracting is bad. And we all agree. So what the system is trying to do, and I, took, uh, I talk about the system, but we intend the system as not the UN, not the INGOs, or the UN and the INGOs, but the overall system. So it's not only an international, it goes down to where it needs to be. Uh, what the, 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 the clear, deliberate attempt that we have been uh, doing in the, in the last months and so on is to ex- to extend a little bit the the tools available, including the humanitarian, the, the UHF, the Ukrainian humanitarian fund, uh, in uh, envelopes that are as directly uh, accessible to national and local actors as possible. Now, because of the eligibility criteria, most of this funding still passes through some what a lot of people call uh, intermediaries, what I would like to call enablers. In most of the cases, these are either UN agencies or uh, international NGOs, or some of the, the biggest, uh, the bigger um, Ukrainian NGOs. The, in, the, in the discussion, what very often is neglected or left apart, purposely or not, I don't know, uh, is uh, the amount of risk and the burden that those organizations tend to take anyway. I mean, when things go south uh, with the uh, administration and uh, and reporting, uh, it will be Oxfam Novib that will get uh, uh, the hit from the donors, from an an audit and so on. So there is some value, I would say, there is some service uh, that uh, international organizations are bringing in. And I close just saying, um, let's not throw away the the experience that some of these organizations do have, okay? It is extremely important to have a local knowledge of what is happening uh, at the at the sub, uh, sub-oblast level, at the sub-regional level and so on, but it's also extremely important to have some level of global accountability knowing what worked in Congo, what worked in Afghanistan, what worked in Syria in order to see what could work in a, a very complex situation as, as Ukraine. Oh.
4: Thank you very much, Marco. Julia, um, I'd like maybe to ask you um, both what you think of the question itself, and possibly if there's anything in what Marco raised that you would like to pick up on. Um, yeah. To,
5: to... Yeah. Thank you all. Um, there are several. There are several things that pop into my mind, like. When we are talking about localization in general yes obstacles yes enablers but uh, i think we are a bit lost in the concept itself because like money spent um, by ukrainians on ukrainians doesn't mean localization really and directness of funding um that you've brought up before is very important because that gives people it shifts a power balance right because we are talking a lot about the power balance here where ukrainian organizations are able to speak for themselves to define their priorities, and because Ukrainian organizations are Ukrainian people, and the fact that uh, there are Ukrainians working in the other system, right, it doesn't really mean that the response really localized in any way, and this funding cannot be counted as a local, locally spent, right. Um, when it comes to obstacles, um, I'm I'm very reserved because there are tons of obstacles, and the system is not designed to have a local response at all. So basically the system is designed by Big Eight for the Big Eight. And the local actors are on, a, on a subcontracting roles. And, and yes, I agree was Marco totally about the administration costs and, and, and this is a big part of it, but this is a system that is imposed, the bureaucracy and the administration is imposed basically by the Big Eight. When it comes to small organizations and small groups, again, I totally agree. A lot of Ukrainian organizations, a lot of Ukrainian volunteers, would not want to become an organization because it's immediate response, it's outpouring of like volunteer response a lot. But at the same time, like um, I think by the beginning of uh, last year, we had around one hundred thousand registered NGOs in Ukraine. Yes, not all of them charities. There are some you know, cultural NGOs, church-based NGOs, and so on and so forth, but 100,000. And when it comes to UN UHF eligible partners, there are 35 national NGOs. So out of 100,000, 35, and this is already reported as success, I'm really not convinced. Um, When it comes to obstacles, a lot, the resistance of the system itself, and this is something I would would, uh, emphasize widely, because the system does make attempts to include uh, Ukrainian voices and voices of Ukrainian organizations, but only after the strong lobby of Ukrainian NGOs. Like uh, let's take a cluster system. In the very beginning, uh, some clusters were not translated to Ukrainian. So basically it's a bunch of international uh, people who have a very good English came to the country and decide how to disperse funds inside Ukraine. Well, national NGOs, and we have to be very honest about that, not all of them would have staff speaking English. So they don't even have access to the decision-making or to discussion itself. Um, again, uh, there are things uh, of on eligibility uh, when it comes to the experience, when it comes to funding. But uh, again, 100,000 NGOs before the full-scale invasion. So 100,000, yes, different size. Many of them are not functional but uh, out of 100,000 there are there are organizations with experience and there are organizations with required funding and a lot of them were working with the big international donors on disinter- like on different type of uh, democratic governance activities different type of uh, like development activities they just switched to humanitarian immediately when um, when when the need came and they will come back to to their normal like development and advocacy activities when the need uh, evaporates. Hopefully, hopefully, sometime soon. So I, I'm not sure how enabling it is, and the, the power dynamic is very concerning because when it comes to international NGOs, for example, we all would have a um, nice insurance. We all would have a certain conditions. The staff would have an RNR cycle. The staff would have. Um, different like housing benefits and the salaries would be like uh, you know up to 10 times more than for national NGOs at the same time we had um, on a podcast we had the um, CEO of one of the national NGOs in Ukraine and what she was sharing with us uh, she said that basically when I want to put insurance for my staff who is working out on the front line in uh, in Nikolai for her I'm not allowed to do that because it's not eligible cost so uh, the power dynamic is is, is 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 the biggest problem here and probably the largest obstacle, I would say.
4: Thank you very much, Julia, for your perspective on this issue. Um, Robert, I'd like to ask you, because you see Open Door Foundation as being somewhat at the juncture between big aid and small aid, I'm interested to hear um, how you see your role going forward. And then around this question of bureaucracy and access to funding. Maybe, I don't know if this is something that you can already share at this stage, but do you see yourself as trying to facilitate um, access to direct funding? If so, how? And maybe just uh, more insight on, yeah, where you see yourself and how you plan to move forward um, to try and implement some of the, um, you know, positive changes that would be required um, for this question. Oh, uh, you're
2: on mute.
0: Yeah, I will uh, certainly try to answer that question also, uh, Val. But um, first of all, the opportunity indeed. I I I, I so much agree here with Julia. Uh, Ukraine has a vibrant civil society, with uh, yeah apparently uh, uh, almost hundred thousand uh, uh, registered organizations. So we do need to enable them. Uh, it's 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 a very different situation, I think, uh, from many other uh, crisis situations where this is where this is not the case. So I I also feel that the more cash assistance can be given to to such uh, organizations, then you enable the Ukrainians to help themselves, and this is basically also our philosophy behind what uh, what uh, what we are doing. Um, and then uh, I can, and I would like you to give you also one other example. Um, you probably all have heard of Dobrobat, the volunteer organization, uh, which is uh, which is almost represented, I think, in in every uh, oblast, every region in uh, in Ukraine, and they are very much involved in something similar in terms of what we are doing, early recovery. And they are trying to help people with uh, damaged houses to uh, to, uh, to help rebuild them, to take the debris away, etc. These activities are mostly funded by U- other Ukrainians, not by us. It's, uh, and that I find strange. I have been at a conference of Oktoberbat and I saw only, I think uh, the Belgian embassy, uh, USAID, and the Germans were there, all with smaller, Embassy contributions to uh, to this uh, Herculean work, which which Dobrovat is doing. So here again, I'm pointing to something that, in my view, is wrong. And and Bat has all the problems of uh, of in terms of the obstacles because they they exist only a half year. <laughs> uh So it's very difficult. And I understand also these difficulties of the uh, of the of the major uh, aid organizations to work with uh, with organizations that have so little experience. Now here I come actually then maybe to trying to answer your questions. Maybe uh, your, your question directed to me, although I have to uh, admit and also t- uh, stress myself that we also are a small organization. Uh, but, uh, but uh, we are growing now uh, because of uh, of the of the increasing workload which we uh, are taking upon us. But yes, maybe there is a role for intermediaries here. Uh, for uh, for organizations, which in, in, in my case, I like to call myself a Dutch Ukrainian organization with uh, a lot of experience on the Dutch side, also in terms of people like myself with a lot of experience in Ukraine. So we bring that network. And uh, for the two organizations, which I already mentioned, we are playing a bit that bridging role at the moment, in particular in the field of early reconstruction, the field of helping as, as directly as possible but always in also in cooperation with the local authorities uh, to uh, to help uh, OSBBS to uh, to help themselves to rebuild those uh, those 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 roofs themselves. We are not doing it. We are just providing the bridge funding, and usually the local authorities are providing the materials. Uh, they of course have also to restore all the amenities to these uh, to these buildings. They play a big role as well. Uh, whether it's about uh, flat buildings or also schools uh, which need to be uh, to need to be repaired. And here I believe that there should be much more funding available at this stage than there actually is at this at this moment because um, Ukraine is not only fighting but also rebuilding. and the longer the war takes, the more important that second part is is also becoming in relatively safe areas like Irpin i mentioned that that's where we have begun but also in Chernihiv and not also even in the liberated areas in the east uh, we are now also starting to do uh, some projects another aspect of this is that it is very important for the morale of Ukrainians i believe and their resilience if they are enabled to actually uh, rebuild uh, their their houses their properties so and i don't feel that i know that there are um so I have to be careful here also, but I know that both the UN and the EU they have opened up facilities uh, for also including uh, um, home homeowners associations to for instance to 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 get to get money for buying windows, or there is another problem for this. but there is little coherence in all of that. Uh, after all, you don't need windows if you don't have yet a roof above your head. Uh, so there is, is there there is I, I would plead for more coherence in early reconstruction. And really, uh, here we don't have to do it ourselves. Uh, we have to enable the Ukrainians to help themselves. And that means more cash assistance.
4: Thanks very much, Robert. Um, I think this is actually a really good uh, transition. The questions that we've discussed so far have been a lot more retrospective. Um, And now I'd like us to be a little bit more forward-looking. But before we do that, Marzia, I'd like to check whether there's anything coming in from the chat that uh, should be reacted to.
1: Yes, well, um, hello everyone. There is a question coming from the chat in terms of the role of the Ukrainian state supporting local NGOs. Um, So yes, uh, it's certain that reconstruction funds addressed to the government will open the floodgates of funding. Does the Ukrainian state make conditions to steer funding to local NGOs, not just local state authorities and services?
4: Um, Okay, well, I'm not entirely sure who the the last part of the question would be best suited to, but in terms of the first part, the role of the Ukrainian states in supporting local NGOs, Yulia, maybe you can take this question.
5: Yeah, I can take in a very nutshell. Um, Look, we have to recognize that Ukrainian government is not in an excellent position financially right now. So uh, there was always funding available for civil society, uh, but it was not the majority of the funding that state budget would have. Uh, currently, it's even worse. So I, I don't have really numbers on that at all. But I know that some some of the funding would go through some civil society organizations, but not necessarily through uh, not necessarily through the. Um, Yeah, not necessarily majority of them. Uh, In Ukraine, we have a Ministry of Reintegration of Temporary Occupied Territories, for example, which is mandated to work with uh, national and international humanitarian organizations on the reconstruction and reintegration and rebuilding. Um, However, where they can, they can channel State budget funding. But at the same time, there is clearly not enough and not sufficient uh, funding for for civil society, for for national NGOs comes through the state budget.
4: Thanks very much, uh, Yulia, for your perspective on this. Um, Robert and Marco, unless one of you has insights on this particular question that you'd like to share, I'm happy to move forward. Um, So, in terms of looking towards the future, um what do you think we should be aiming for here? Because we've talked about direct access to funding, how it's limited for a number of reasons, how it should be increased, but we're not entirely sure how to um practically go about that. And so what do you yeah, what do you think the aim should be in terms of how the international community articulates itself vis-a-vis the Ukrainian um NGO and volunteer organizations and all of the other organizations that are available? Is the aim for international organizations to just give more money and basically go away, step outside of Ukraine, or should the ambition be for them to have a bigger footprint and be able to deliver? Because that's another one of the issues that we've mentioned as well, is the fact that it's primarily Ukrainian people who are taking on the risks and responding um, at the level closest to people in need. So yeah, what do you think the international community should be aiming for here? And I think Marco, I'm going to put this question to you first, if you don't mind
2: yeah uh, well a lot of things <laughs> needs to be done. some of the things are being done of course uh, not at scale uh, where they, they they need to be. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, complementarity of the action, I think the first thing is to identify a common ground, uh, a common a common goal. Uh, now I've already alluded to a very specific thing for uh, for the Ukrainian context which is, uh, the blurred line between uh, humanitarianism and solidarism. I don't know if it's (laughs) English, but anyway, uh, even international observers and very well-reputed uh, thinkers in humanitarian uh, affairs have been discussing about the concept of or the principle of neutrality, that in situations uh, of uh, extreme clarity of use ad bellum or use in bello uh, can be maybe not so important uh, compared to the need to respond and to make sure that there is a solidarity approach toward that. Now, yeah, is it, uh, is it uh, right? Is it wrong? I don't know, but uh, if uh, we want to uh, up, uh, uphold the, 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 the principles, I think we need to find some common ground, and there uh, there are some surprises. I think uh, where I, when I came in in Ukraine, uh, I, I had the idea that most of the local NGOs were completely sided, uh, uh, you know, basically neglecting the, the principle of neutrality. But it's not true. Most of them didn't have the opportunity to think uh, in depth about what does it mean and what it means for other crises. I mean, of course, Ukraine is not isolated, is not outside this, uh, uh, this world. And what is happening in Ukraine is, uh, is seen and observed and studied by many out there. And if we breach principles in, uh, in Ukraine, it's very likely that we'll have some uh, uh, more assertiveness by other actors in other countries to say, you did it in Ukraine, you can do it in Afghanistan, you can do it in Syria, you can do it uh, here and there with the, with the plethora of problems. I did say that most of the organizations do have uh, the, the, let's say, at least sympathy for the principles, there are other organizations, though, that uh, are basically more radical, and they say we see absolutely no difference in distributing food to civilians uh, in Chasiviar, uh, uh, near uh, near Bakhmud, or to the army, because these were my schoolmates. Uh, so they've been helping, they are helping my risking their life to help my... So it's just right for me uh, to support them. Yes, it may be right, but you can't do it with humanitarian tools. Uh, I don't want to be definitional here, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day is where the perimeter we use as a compass, if you want, in order to make sure we try to maintain a line that is coherent and so on. Now, another element I would say uh, is about, uh, and I think Rob uh, brought it in, uh, is about the relation with local governments or the Oblast uh, military administration, which is already a definitional problem, if you want, in most of the cases. But uh, yeah, uh, Ukraine is not immune in the fact that uh, local actors the local organizations tend to have either excellent relations with the local governments or horrible relations depending where they stand into the spectrum of politics, the spectrum of any uh, you know uh, any uh, sophisticated if you want society and so on. There, I think there is a value also for the United Nations but also for um, embassies, uh, institutional donors, uh, international organizations, in order not to be an intermediary, but to be an element of, uh, you know, uh, with basically with no skin in the game in the political game, although there is a lot of politics. Uh, in the in the aid uh, globally and in uh, in Ukraine, but a little bit to be a, a credible broker uh, into the operation when local actors come. And to the point of Yulia, of course, there were there are I don't know hundreds of thousand uh, of organizations. The point is that a lot of them. Uh, are reproposed organizations. A lot of them were uh, human rights organizations, anti-corruption organizations, whatever uh, kind of organizations. The 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 sweet, I mean, the shift into humanitarian organization doesn't take weeks or uh, months. It takes uh, years. We don't, you know, that is also the problem. Sometimes we need to be at their side and there's a cost to be at their side, but we need to be at their side in order to make sure that we are combined. But again, going back to the point of uh, of, of the very beginning, I think at the end of the day, probably 70% of the operation is carried out by local actors regardless of the, how direct uh, the funding is. Okay.
4: Thanks very much, Marco. Um, So I would like us to stay on funding. So for now, we are going to get back to the principles when I'll open the Q&A session with that. Um, So, and I intend to give you the floor then, Yulia. But I would like to ask you, Robert, what you see as being the um, best case scenario going forward in terms of how uh, big aid and small aid interact when it comes to funding. I don't know if you have a perspective on that. Oh you're on mute again. Sorry.
0: I'm very strict with unmuting myself and I'm not going coming back. Sorry for that. Um, no well it's it's of course not an easy question you're you're putting to me but um some ways uh, forward have to be found here and uh, the more that can be done practically the better I think in this in this situation. I I would plead for trying to seek coalitions. You know, I feel that um, it is important. Um, that's what I have learned in what we are doing. We always w- would like to go as much as possible to the direct beneficiaries. For instance, the owners of a flat building uh, 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 who are organized in in a uh, homeowners association. But they need, and we need, the local authorities. So we're also working with the local authorities. And if we can find another fund to help us, because all our um, projects are also to, to mitigate the risk limited to a maximum. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to cooperate. We try always to uh, to, 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 uh, to to build these uh, these coalitions. And the more you can actually involve there, uh, the local uh, people, but also the local NGOs, the better. I can give you another example in this respect that we are, for instance, in uh, Trostianets, in the Sumi region. We are working uh, through a local uh, organization. It's called Dobrata, uh, which is actually very closely related with the local uh, uh, municipality because they are trying to help the municipality with all the needs. And uh, it is so uh, so absolutely clear. It should be so absolutely clear to everybody that that local authorities are overwhelmed uh, by by all kinds of things they uh, they need to do, and uh, so they need to be helped. And I feel that. Um, um and and here i see this as a challenge for the established uh, international actors to actually become a bit more inventive uh, in, in terms of how they actually uh, uh, go about in ukraine because after all there is this vibrant uh, civil society uh, ukrainians can do everything in principle themselves so then, you have actually to adapt also your uh, your the way you operate uh, to that to that situation. But last but not least, it has hardly been mentioned so far. There is of course here an elephant in the room, which is corruption, which we all know uh, is is still a serious problem in uh, in Ukraine. And this is what I sometimes also hear from uh, international organizations, in particular when you get involved in construction activities. Well, I answer them that if. The international world knows that Ukraine is going to be helped with massive reconstruction uh, assistance uh, after this war is over. Then, better try to localize that also as much as possible. It will be, uh, it will be, uh, it will be much more effective, cheaper, and uh, I think the risks of corruptions will then also be mitigated. So, I think this is a real challenge for all of us to uh, to think about how this could be best done. And I have a feeling. That we're not yet there.
4: Thanks very much, Robert. I think one of the questions, because uh, so one of the recurring elements of the conversation we're having is the fact that Ukrainian society is very, Ukrainian civil society is very vibrant and, you know, there's still a strong government in place despite the financial issues that Yulia mentioned. And I have to wonder if there are so many complications around direct access to funding in Ukraine, Um, what does that mean for other contexts? How, I mean, fundamentally, the question boils down to how feasible is the localization agenda? If we can't put it in place in Ukraine, where can we put it in place, if at all? Um, And here, I think, Yulia, I'm going to turn to you because I'm interested in your perspective. Having also worked as an international aid actor abroad, how do you, um, yeah, maybe, how do you see a solution there if, if
5: you see one at all. Uh, look, I think for solution, we should have like a very strong will to do that. And uh, and this is in the first place and prerequisite for all. So far, I don't really see the will and it's not only Ukraine and it's not about Ukrainian civil society or Ukrainian organizations, which are, it is really strong. Ukraine has a history of you know several revolutions and very strong civil society, which is actually Making a strong influence on the on the government politics, uh, so of course they are very good in, for example, being vocal and fighting for their uh, narrative and interest uh, through this open letter from Ukrainian civil society that you were just dropped on a on a chat bo- chat box. However, at the same time. To say that Ukraine is the only country in the world who has a strong civil society, I would uh, I, w- I would disagree because that's not the case. And the, in many countries where many of us would work, you would have a very strong civil society, which still uh, with a similar problems in Ukraine, corruption and so on and so forth. <laughs> I I don't want to un- I don't want to answer like directly about the localization effort how, se- how feasible it is. I think I would frame it. It's necessary rather than feasible and it's necessary. And the willingness of the international system, which is clearly not fit for, for purpose of localization um, is, is a key to this change. And, uh, and I think it's, um, it's equally both mental and the formal system, formal structures reform that is constantly ongoing in the UN and the international system. Uh, we constantly leave through the reforms of these systems. But uh, it's a lot about the mental change, and uh, I think the question is really much more broader than humanitarian aid here. Are we as society in the world, are we really have a willingness and openness to, you know, um, decolonize our mind and basically think broader and think uh, and, and make the world kind of much more equal place? Uh, both in gender dynamics, both in, in, it's it's just like, I think humanitarian aid is just one of the aspects and it can't, this issue cannot be solved by humanitarian aid only.
4: Yeah, thanks very much, Yulia, uh, for that perspective. And I'm glad that you took the, your, the answer to the question on a more um, philosophical path, because that is where I would like to um, wrap up this first part and ask you all, and this is going to be ambitious because I'd like you to be quite brief in your responses, but the question is very big Um, where, so we've talked a lot about the amount of money that was raised for Ukraine. And I think one of the questions um, related to this is all of these appeals were being made and matched in a very short time frame and then you have other contexts where the appeal was made and the funding did not reach the expected level. So I'm thinking of the uh, Yemen appeal that was issued last year and that was issued again this year. That was, you know, not at the level that was expected. So do you think that there is a moral obligation to stop collecting funds once we reach a certain amount? And in an almost I suppose it's the application of the principle of impartiality where you have a needs based approach to fundraising right or from the from the international perspective so I'm curious for your perspectives on this um, as a as a final question for this first part Um, Marco I think I'll put this to you first and
2: then Robert and then Yulia yeah, no, I think uh, you're spot on. As as we say, I mean, it's it, it is about needs. Uh, then we have to define the needs. Uh, I mean, money, uh, money. I mean, the funding and the advocacy around funding should be related to the needs. Now, uh, there are two dimensions. There is the dimension of Ukraine itself and the global dimension. For the global dimension, like I say there was at some point uh, uh, maybe some discussion saying, uh, shall we reduce the fund the funding for uh, for Ukraine to to raise more money for other crises and so? on? The point is, we shall raise. As ma- many as much money as needed in any in any context. Now, for Ukraine and probably is is, is valid for any country, uh, we need to define what uh, money are we looking for. I mean, I'm uh, my 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 job was humanitarian period all right of course there is the simultaneity of early reconstruction early recovery reconstruction development uh, all the nexus thing and so on but you know the, the focus was there um, humanitarian typically uh, raise funds for life saving activities right now in ukraine arguably there is a fine line between uh, some somebody put it in this way between life saving and life affirmation uh, in ukraine itself and all the social protection all the not not, not all the cash, but all the cash, for instance, the Ministry of Social Affairs is uh, uh, is uh, is handling for sustaining uh, a large amount of poverty that there is in the country, and so on. That is probably borderline with something different from from humanitarian, right? But uh, surprise, surprise, it's coming from other funding streams. It's not coming through the HRP, right? So we're fine. I would say, with the amount of uh, of, of people that uh, that we have, we have to just uh, make sure that we are not exceeding in the request. And I think OCHA in general is doing, a, a, or the humanitarian coordinator in general is doing an excellent uh, work in defining what are the needs, what is the target, also what is the target of our capacity, and normally is is a little bit lower. We know that there will be people difficult to reach, or that other people will reach rather than uh, an HRP driven uh, driven response. So uh, summarizing. Yes, it is about uh, about needs, and let's define the needs.
4: Great, thank you very much for that. Robert, please.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I, I agree with Marco that, of course, we should continue to, uh, to provide assistance as much as is needed, and as this is an ongoing war situation, I think the needs uh, will continue to be there. But I also uh, understand your question in the sense that Um, There are other needs elsewhere in the world, and the West sometimes tends to be accused of double standards when it comes to Ukraine, uh, in terms of its responsiveness uh, to this crisis, uh, compared, for instance, to crisis in the Middle East. I've been working a lot in the Middle East, and I've been uh, last year back, and... uh, um, I was struck how uh, people elsewhere are looking differently at this conflict and at the West's role in it. Uh, so this is something I think we should be aware uh, more or less globally. But that doesn't mean that we have in Ukraine an, an, an emergency situation. It is continuing and that I f- not for a minute believe that we should should consider to stop <laughs> The funding activities uh, certainly also not the funding activities which are, d- are still done also on a crowdfunding basis uh, uh, in for instance also in my own country they remain important but it we re- it is also important that uh, as uh, people uh, have been giving already generously in uh, in, uh, in european countries that the institutional donors take over and, uh, and and make sure that the money, this, this big uh, uh, amount of money that has been uh, collected is, uh, is dispersed as uh, of course, as uh, uh, is disbursed in a way that it indeed gets to the people, meaning local. <laughs> And this is what the whole discussion was about. And uh, I don't think we have resolved all the issues, but uh, it was a very pertinent issue you have put on the agenda for us.
4: Great, thank you very much, Robert. Elliot, um
5: to you, and then yeah, i want to short because I generally like I agree with uh, with both of my fellow panelists. Uh, yes, it's not the time to stop funding because the wars continue and the need is will be there as long as the uh, as long as the war continues in Ukraine at the same time I would actually think a bit more um, whether we should um, transform funding in a way that it's uh, kind of moot, mo- start slowly moving from humanitarian pot to development pot but at the same time we all know that to raise for humanitarian needs is just easier than to raise for development needs so um, I don't really have an answer we, we we clearly couldn't stop because the need is there uh, but uh, the the nature of the funding might be might be reassessed in in the future. Great. Thank you very much, Julia. Um,
4: so this is where the I'm going to formally open the Q and A session of this panel. I see that there is already a question in the chat. Um, so Marta, I will let you cover that part. I don't know if I've missed anything else. So yeah, Marta, over to you, please.
1: Thank you, uh, Val, and thank you, uh, Julia, Robert and Marco for your uh, very, very interesting points. Um, staying on, on funding, um, I think and some of the points have been addressed indirectly, but the question in the chat is um, twofold. So one is, are you aware of organizations that have had to stop operations because they couldn't access the funds that they needed? And then also maybe um, kind of uh, if you have additional points to add on this, but uh, do you expect this informal funding streams, so um, all of the direct private uh, sources of funding to dry out uh, in the near future because of solidarity, exhaustion, other lack of interest or other pressures. Um, So that's the question so far in the chat. I'm just uh, going to uh, ask participants to keep adding questions in the chat I will be monitoring. Thank you. Yes, please. Um, I think
4: maybe I'd like to split this question into in terms of who it's being directed to and Marco I'd like to ask you about your input on the first part on operations who maybe had to stop operating when they couldn't get the funding that they needed and then Robert I'll put the question of uh, informal funding to you please but Marco first.
2: Yes, no, absolutely. Unfortunately, it is a reality. There are organizations, especially local organizations, that, uh, you know, had to stop. There was a a beginning, a peak of funding where everybody seemed to have the funding regardless of of, um, uh, the service, basically. There was (laughs) not enough for everybody, but there was, uh, you know, the the, the, the first input was very, very uh, large. Uh, some of the non-formal donors or international actors, maybe even some international organizations that acted like as a, as a, as a mini donor, if you want. There's nothing mini when you talk about funding for, for humanitarian affairs in Ukraine, let's be clear. But uh abruptly stopped the programs, uh, saying, you know, a week before, all right, the money is uh, uh is, is over at the uh, you know the beginning of September. We closed the food, uh, the food the support for these and these and these uh, uh, oblasts, which uh, you know, with extreme uh, catastrophic results for the pe- people, the affected population first, and for very small uh, volunteer groups that were supporting, like collective centers where people were uh, finding shelter and so on, typically with families, with children or elderly and so on um so yeah it is a reality others like uh found uh, uh we we did uh, a stock taking exercises about uh, prote- um, uh, localization and uh, and partnership recently uh it was uh in february uh with the under them under plus i think organizations and so on some of them and we wanted stories not only success stories but their life and they say look we had uh to readapt we had this kind of uh pick and then uh, basically we 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 went out of fashion in a a way. We had to reorganize ourselves and to start partnering with other organizations and then slowly but steadily coming back to a plateau where they feel also comfortable. Some of the organizations, I think it's relevant to say it, uh, found that the beginning of the crisis was not overfunded in general, but they had... uh, Uh, There was too much demand for partners and they were congesting their capacity to to handle uh, sources. It's not as easy as it may seem to to burn $100,000 a week maybe over.
4: Thanks very much, and so Robert, I move to you for the um, second question, or the second part of the question rather, which is do you think there is a risk of the in, informal funding streams to dry out, um, and how do you see you're muted again. Um, yeah, how do you see that. things? I, I,
0: yes, I um I think it is uh, slowly happening starting to happen at, at, at least I can I can of course only talk about my own country uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, which has been uh, uh, so far uh, very, very uh, respondi- responsive responsive the public uh, to uh, to the needs in in Ukraine. But of course, the longer the war continues, uh, it's almost logical uh, that uh, that uh, um, people are not again uh, uh, willing to uh, to to reach out. Uh, so this is this is, I feel it also because I, we are a network organization as I ha- have been telling you. And some of the smaller uh, Dutch uh, humanitarian organizations are now turning to us, uh, whether we can help them, particularly also with the, the, the contacts we have with some of the, the major organizations I've, uh, we are cooperating with. But that's the same situation as with the local uh, organizations in, uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. That's not how the, uh, the established uh, organizations are working. So it's very difficult for them uh, to uh, to be funded uh, through uh, through uh, the these uh, more established uh, channels. Um, so yes, uh, it is slowly happening.
4: Um, yeah, thank you for your answer. Even though obviously that is not the answer that I suppose any of us want to hear. Um, we've talked a lot about so the interplay between international and national and local actors through the uh, lens of funding but of course that's not the only metric through which we can analyze this relationship and this is where I'd like to come back to principles quite briefly because Yulia I did tell you you would have an opportunity to um, share your opinion on this. Um, I know it's something that you've already covered in the podcast but if you wouldn't mind maybe giving your uh, your yeah your, your opinion on the principles element of the question and then I think I'll open the question more broadly to ask whether there is a, uh, whether there are other metrics through which we could analyze this relationship. But first principles, over to you, Yulia.
5: Yeah, Uh, with principles, it's a difficult discussion really. Uh, My biggest problem that um, adherence to four principles is uh, the major criterion for uh, access to humanitarian funding. And, uh, And I would not, argue that principles are necessary they are necessary and when it comes to humanity and partiality even independence nobody really disagrees um about their necessity there at the same time when it comes to neutrality uh there are a lot of questions and i totally agree with marco that majority of the ukrainian national ngos uh, would not even want to be neutral uh, in a situation of the very direct violence against them and their families. Um, same with in- national staff of international organizations. Actually, um, with principles, uh, it's tricky. Um, I think there are there are a lot of discussion now happening, uh, talking beyond neutrality and talking about the solidarity and talking about um, other forms that would be our guiding stars in this humanitarian world and sometimes I would even pose a question uh, neutrality versus effectiveness or versus humanity uh, when it comes to aid uh, in certain contexts like Ukraine for example Uh, so yeah uh, it's it's very difficult question here Uh, When it comes to neutrality, but at the same time, yes, there is a place for neutrality and there are organizations with a very particular mandate uh, who require neutrality as a a cornerstone of their response, like we have ICRC, for example. But at the same time, uh, whether this size, whether the the size of uh, the size or the the model, the modus operandi of uh, humanitarian principle fits all humanitarian response, I'm not convinced. So there are activities where neutrality facilitate access and there are activities where neutrality doesn't facilitate access. And the only thing that they does is actually alienate um, aid from the population that it's aimed for. Thank you very much julia um
4: yeah i kind of would like to put this question to uh both marco and robert in terms of are there any other metrics through which we should be analyzing this relationship and if so yeah beyond the kind of principles question and the question of funding and i suppose this kind of ties in with a question that's currently in the chat which is to what extent can this panel discussion influence a shift in terms of how humanitarian aid is administered and i think the, this yeah I suppose we need a big picture approach to um, ensure this and so do we have all of our bases covered by talking about funding and principles or are we missing anything Uh, Robert maybe you'd like to take this one first
0: can I first uh, still wait.
4: no you've just muted yourself so
0: ah that button uh, I'm not going to touch it anymore. You you mute or unmute me, please. <laughs> um, no, may I first shortly react to this whole discussion about neutrality? Because it puzzles me a bit. Um, how can Ukrainians be neutral when they when they are intact in the way they are? Of course, uh, I understand neutrality when it comes to the role of the ICRC, uh, which would other have, otherwise not have access. But to what extent neutrality should play such a big role in what we are doing uh, in helping ukrainian people to uh, to survive i simply don't understand it's just a just a remark i i wanted to make um when it comes to your more overall question um i have little to add what i uh, i think i have already been uh, been been saying to you i th- i don't think that this uh this i, I, I tre- tremendously enjoy as a non-expert to uh, to be part of this uh, discussion um and I feel that more of these discussions uh, will be needed uh, to, uh, to make a difference. This, this panel will not uh, uh, make a difference. Uh, straight answer to your or to a question which, which was apparently put uh, to, to us. But I feel that uh, the issue is clear. There is an issue. Uh, so yes, the, then we need more. We need more, uh, more attention to it and also a higher level.
4: Thank you very much. I yeah, Marco, you're up to
2: yeah, you. Yeah, no, two, two, three things on neutrality. Uh you know, at the end of the day, we still try to go where is needed and where it is accessible. Now there are a lot of areas that are not accessible, and I agree with Julia. Uh, you know, principles are not; there are conditions in a well-known uh, do business in humanitarian affairs, but they are not a guarantee of uh, of access. And you know, despite all humanitarian notification system requests and uh, you know, uh, asking the other side uh, access to 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 a number of areas in the in the contact line or beyond the contact Line. And so this is not happening, or is not happening on the on the on the scale that we want. So there is a problem. But um, yeah, I, I, putting ourselves in the in the in the shoes of of uh, Ukraine, of course, neutrality is like uh, is, uh, is something even to fight against uh, rather than even tolerate and so on. But the the, the 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 question is in the context itself. At the end of the day, if you keep your uh, uh, let's say position for for yourself, which is obvious. At the end of the day it's not that easy to breach the neutrality because uh, you know you won't have access anyway to a number of, of, of people uh, and uh, you know the risk is really in some of the very the area very close, the belt on the contact line where there is and is becoming a, an issue obviously for whoever goes there frequently as we, uh, we used to do to, to, to do, uh, the society is, uh, is fragmented. There, you know, there is a, there is a, there is an, an uh, you know, it's not holding as it was holding some months ago, and there's a lot of accusation between between locals about who did uh, tolerate the presence of the the Russian forces, who did not, who collaborated, who not, who is staying for waiting for something, and who is not, and so on. There, luckily, is a limited amount of what can go wrong in terms of principles uh, because we are talking about uh, let take back mode. i think uh, if i'm not wrong a city of 50000 people is now down to 2000 people right so the uh the damage to principles that you can do is really a fraction of what the needs in Ukraine are we're talking about 17 18 million people and in the belt uh, because of the circumstances there is a very limited amount amount of people which require all our effort that is going on every day in order to make sure that there are the basic essential for life sustaining uh, there and life saving but uh, yeah the, the, the we are talking about a fraction of the is a is a probably not a a nice way to put it, but of the target, the humanitarian target in terms of people uh, we want to reach. And thanks to Lars for raising the point on, uh, on trust. Uh, I would have raised it. It is exactly about trust in the partnership. So I'm, I'm less interested in the in the connotation definition about uh, about localization in the way we uh, sometimes we put it in the in this in this panel, the Grand Bergen and so on, and the uh, and the World Material Summit and all these things and so on. I'm rather, as you as I started, uh, focusing on effectiveness and accountability of of the response. And these will come, and you also. Uh, responding to your answer to your question on, on the perspective on the future'll come with trust in the partnership. And again, in our stock taking as a size, uh, partnership, I mean trust is slowly uh, increasing. We didn't know each other. Uh, not in this uh, in this uh, size at this scale of the response we knew each other at 20 million uh, at 20 million um, uh, hrp in a small response for people that were very expert in the response there they were very like regional and knowing what was going now the situation is completely different the whole uh, circus of humanitarian response is there and it takes time to create this trust is an avalanche is is really a wave that comes into a, a society no matter how how uh, vibrant it is to accept and so on luckily for for internationals uh ukrainians are very tolerating. Very, let's say, accommodating of uh, uh, and very patient. Also, of some mistakes and so on. And I think it's just coming. It's just coming. I don't want to be over uh, over positive, of course, but or or, or uh, optimistic. But it's coming uh, along nicely. I think in the future we will have more positive elements than than negative.
4: Great. Thank you very much, Marco. Um, So there is another question in the chat um, to you, Marco, specifically based on your experience of funding quality and coverage in different settings. Can you elaborate? But I would like more details on what the question actually is, if the person who asked the question could please um, complete that further. And in the meantime, I'd actually like to put the question of how do we scale trust building to Yulia, please.
5: i I think i i i I would agree with mark Uh, to some extent we are slowly moving in the right direction uh, but at the same time definitely not as fast enough and not as uh, effective enough Um, trust comes with a trust on both sides and at minimum equal partnership because if there is no equality in the relationship there's there's no trust like uh, when the you know big brother comes to kind of take care of a small eight brother, um, then, then it's not that's not where the trust comes from. Uh, uh, trust comes from respect, trust, uh, trust comes from hearing. And I think this is important part because we all talk about the Ukrainian voices um, speaking out loud and being very prominent and vibrant, but at the same time, uh, and I think uh, the kind of international society in general, starting getting there and um, it's very important to be heard so and this is this is something that enables trust and this is something that enables this relationship building to hear about the needs of each other to hear about perspective and challenges of each other uh, to make sure that uh, like we are there kind of having a common understanding common goal Thank you,
4: Yulia. And yes, I think I would be remiss if I didn't address the fact that we are having this panel without a representative from a Ukrainian civil society organization to speak for themselves, which is, um, yeah, ironic for lack of a better term. Um, so, Marco, the question in terms of funding is can you elaborate on the funding situation between Ukraine and other countries? Is that something that you can offer any insight on? Um, and just to. Yeah, work, sorry, good. just before you go ahead. Um, Please, if there are any further questions, you should put them in the chat now because I think we are reaching um, the time to wrap up slowly. There's still time, but just, yeah. Marco, please.
2: Yeah, no, I think the shared dimension, uh, the magnitude of the of the, the response and the funding allows for some quality of the funding. Some uh, uh, I wouldn't call it flexibility, but some room maneuver, maneuver and so on. I, I brought the example of the UHF. I think it was a, a first globally to 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 you know to allocate some envelopes directly for. Uh, uh, for national ngos then we we saw how what what direct means <laughs> which is in- indirect but not too in- indirect and so on so there is uh, there are some uh, some elements there i think uh, the quality where we have to work better is to harmonize a little bit more the informal funding with the formal uh, with the formal one there is a lot of a uh, hybrid international versus uh, national local volunteer groups particularly uh, that do have uh, you know interesting uh, no trivial budgets, I would say, uh, and for us is difficult to, to, to map it, to know what it is about, to know what are the over, uh, overarching uh, goals that they have, and so on. Now, for donors, the quality there comes, uh, I think, in probably trying to walk the talk. You, I think you, well, uh, you said uh, about, if not in Ukraine, where? uh and i agree i mean uh, donors still have a very uh, very um, clear narrative around localization absolutely absolute support and advocacy and support to 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 localization but then if you look at the, you know how they erogate funds how they uh you know is budget funds is exactly what i was describing there is almost always an intermediary or an enabler and so on. So they need to try uh, to see if something else, I mean, if it's not coming from institutional donors, certainly it's not coming from recipients of the institutional donors, the UN or the INGOs. You know, we're already a step uh, too far from where uh, the magic can happen, right? They need to try to do it. And I found them a little bit, not in the defensive, very personally as persons very adamant to try, but then they say, look, I'm not, uh, you know, the person that can change the policy from Washington, from London, just to mention two, from Brussels, to mention three, just to not make names, but to give you some hints, uh, and so on. So I think there is where we, uh, we can work.
4: Great, thank you very much for that response. And I think we have a question which I think brings the, the panel quite nicely to close um so i'll read it out loud and then i think if any of you want to react i'm going to yeah just raise your hand i'm not going to allocate this one and the question is as follows why should the issue of a more equal partnership be reduced to the metric of effectiveness that is the justification of the ingo and it has a perfect track record of maintaining power why should local and national ngos have to show effectiveness in their house isn't this primarily a question of ethics so i don't know if anybody feels particularly strongly about responding to this question i see yulia yes
5: yulia please i have a very short answer like it shouldn't <laughs> like I, I totally agree with the
2: concept and it shouldn't
4: okay well if anybody else wants to take the floor on this question
2: well, i can, i guess i'm perfectly fine with ethics but i'm more interested in uh, in uh, what happens to the affected population so my my what keeps me awake at night is to make sure that people do have uh, do have the right assistance and protection, uh, and I'm less inclined to take, uh, you know, other philosophical elements into the equation. They will help us to move the policy forward, so it's absolutely necessary to have the conversation, but when it comes to the ground operation, I think we need to, uh, we're, we're talking about effectiveness and not efficiency, by the way, so uh, it's also, you know, what is really happening and not, not uh, you know, how, what, is, uh, what is cheaper, what is uh, Let's say more, more uh, respectful also the of the taxpayers' money and so on. So these all things come together at the end of the what matters. I think and it's difficult to argue against. I I hope uh, is are we we collectively and complementarily serving the needs of the people. Period. I mean, of course, it's not a period. I mean, it's open to (laughs) to 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 debate and so on. But it's what I think is is important to to highlight.
4: Thanks Marco. Robert, would you like to react to anything that's been said in relation to this question? And unmute yourself first.
0: I thought you would do that. Uh, no, well, you know, um, I, I certainly also on, on the question of ethics and and that question that was raised, I feel sympathy for the question the way it was, was put, but I'm uh, I have been always been a more practically oriented man, and uh, so I'm looking for for solutions. And I was noticing, by the way, another question which we got in the chat, uh, which was addressed for all of us, all of us, which was actually asking us uh, whether we should, uh, if I we call it well, whether whether the government, uh, which is now administering this fund, the the UHF is this called whether we can rely on the government that it actually trickles down to the uh, to the NGOs or stays with uh, maybe more with local governments. And I found that actually a quite good question, Um, because we all know (laughs) that that is very often the problem also with NGOs. NGOs uh, are uh, sometimes not very friendly uh, uh, on friendly terms with uh, uh, with with local authorities uh, or with the government itself. So I found that an an, an interesting question also to uh, a little bit reflect on brings me again to the need for maybe an, another structure where the the, uh, the established uh, international aid organizations providing a fund a fund for uh, for for local uh, for local uh, uh, organizations and uh, and and a mechanism. And it needs to be monitored, uh, but something like that which would open up more of that money uh, uh, straight away to uh, to uh, to civil society and to the active uh, and the many active uh, um, humanitarian organizations in uh, in in Ukraine. And I also agree with I think what was said by uh, by some one of us already that. Um, As the war goes on, uh, we should not only concentrate on the pure humanitarian activities, but also on the next stage, which is early recovery, early reconstruction, and I've already been telling you that that's where specifically we have become active.
4: Great, thank you very much, Robert. I think the need for more creativity within the humanitarian sector, while somewhat of platitude, is, uh, is a good place to um, to conclude this. Um, I'm also quite mindful of time, so unfortunately I think now is the uh, time to wrap up. I would like to thank um, all three of you, so Yulia, Marco and Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to um Sit down with me this evening and to share your perspective on all of these questions. Um, I would like to thank uh, True Humanitarian again for uh, co-producing this panel and for their support in setting it up Um, if you're interested in further engaging with here geneva uh, we are going to be dropping our contact information in the uh, chat box and i also really um encourage you to check out the uh, trumanitarian podcast series on ukraine As well, although for those of you who have attended tonight, don't listen to episode five, because it'll be very redundant for you. Um, But definitely check out the first um, four. And yeah, thank you to all of the um, participants for taking the time to join me uh, to join us this evening. And I believe that with that, we can bring this panel to a close. Sorry, no, and thank you to Marzia and Frida for tech support. Um, But yeah, thank you to all of you for uh, for attending. It's uh, really appreciated. The
1: freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each. Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind, beyond rich or poor, for the truth. You've been born humanitarian.